following is a conversation with Mark Rybert, a legendary roboticist, founder, and longtime CEO of Boston Dynamics, and recently the executive director of the newly created Boston Dynamics AI Institute that focuses on research and the cutting edge, on creating future generations of robots that are far better than anything that exists today. He has been leading the creation of incredible legged robots for over 40 years at CMU, at MIT, the legendary MIT Leg Lab, and then of course, Boston Dynamics with amazing robots like Big Dog, Atlas, Spot, and Handle. This was a big honor and pleasure for me. And now a quick few second mention of each sponsor. Check them out in the description. It's the best way to support this podcast. We got Hidden Layer for securing your AI and machine learning models, Babbel for learning new languages, Masterclass for learning, NetSuite for business management software, and ExpressVPN for privacy and security on the internet. Choose wisely, my friends. Also, if you want to work with our amazing team or just get in touch with me, go to lexfriedman.com contact. And now onto the full ad reads. As always, no ads in the middle. I try to make these interesting, but if you skip them, please still check out the sponsors. I enjoy their stuff. Maybe you will too. This episode is brought to you by a new sponsor, an amazing sponsor called Hidden Layer. It's a platform that provides security for your machine learning models. If you've been paying any attention, it's obvious that generative AI machine learning, AI in general, it's going to transform basically every single industry. If you're starting a business, if you're running a business, there's probably a lot of ways that uh, language models or any of these generative system could be used to help automate certain things, to help empower certain things, improve certain things, all that kind of stuff, to work together with humans to improve the productivity. Now, what comes with great, powerful new technology is security threats. There's always bad guys out there and they wanna find ways in, adversarial attacks, they wanna trick you. You need experts to help you incorporate the machine learning models that you're using in a secure way. That's what Hidden Layer does. I think that's really interesting because the kinds of attacks on machine learning models is going to be really, really interesting because one way to do that is if you look at a, model zoo repository like Hugging Face, for example. One way is to get a model in there that looks legit, but has weirdness to it, that are hard to discover until they're actually way down the line being used at a large scale. So that's like one way to do it. The other way is to do outside repositories and deliver the models that look legit, but again, in subtle ways, difficult to detect ways, it will look Legit at first, it will look functional and correct at first, but then the kind of malware inside the machine will emerge down the line. So you want experts to be considering this rapidly evolving security threat that is laden within uh, machine learning systems. Visit hiddenlayer.com slash Lex to learn more about uh, Hidden Layer. These guys are great. They're great sponsors of this podcast. They do a really important service for the whole machine learning community. So check them out. This episode is brought to you by Babbel, an app and website that gets you speaking in a new language within weeks. Russian, Spanish, French, German, Italian, Portuguese, and more. I can keep going, but those are the ones I want to speak. German, Italian, 
I want to at least order stuff in Italian or a restaurant. And that's the kind of stuff you can learn with Babbel really quick. It's like practical conversational stuff. So when you're traveling, you can use it. Portuguese, obviously, you know. I practice a martial art called Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Portuguese, Brazil, I got to do it. Spanish, same thing. I'm a huge fan of soccer, aka football. And of course, dream of one day interviewing some of these said soccer players and the other languages like Russian. We're going to try to do a bunch of different translation and overdubbing very, very soon of the various podcast conversations I've been doing. I think one of the most powerful way to bridge barriers between people is breaking through the wall that language creates, automated translation. And then when you actually meet them in person to speak their language or to attempt to speak their language, that's what, again, Babel is great for. I use it, all the languages I mentioned, I've used it to learn that, even to practice my Russian. For a limited time, get 50% off a one-time payment for a lifetime Babel subscription at babbel.com slash lexpod. That's 50% off at babbel.com slash lexpod, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash lexpod. Rules and restrictions apply. This episode is also brought to you by Masterclass, where you can watch 180 classes from the best people in the world in their respective thing. Phil Ivey on poker, I'm a big fan of his. I'm just a big fan of poker. Aaron Franklin on barbecue and brisket. I just uh, ate at Terry Black's, and I've also eaten at Franklin's. Those are great barbecue joints here in uh, Austin, Texas, and it's just delicious. I love it. There's another place I really love called JNL Barbecue. They're great. I mean, they're all like incredible in their own way. And the personalities of people that are running these places is just incredible. They all really love barbecue. And Aaron Franklin is one of those people, but he's also really good at communicating how to make barbecue. He has great cookbooks. He has great videos. He's just good. He's a great teacher. No, he's a great celebrator of the beauty of cooking and cooking this particular thing, which is uh, in this case, brisket. I mean, I highly recommend it. It's like watching an artist describe what he loves to do. I watched it and I really enjoyed it. Get unlimited access to every masterclass and get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash LexPod. That's masterclass.com slash LexPod. This episode is also brought to you by NetSuite, an all-in-one cloud business management system, ERP system as the kids call it, or the cool kids call it, or the experts call it. It's not really the cool kids, the experts. I think it stands for Enterprise Resource Planning, but I could be wrong. Anyway, ERP, everybody knows what that is. If you think of a company as a giant machine with different components and modules and so on, ERP is the kind of the brain of the operation that connects everything, make sure that everything speaks the common language and all that kind of stuff. That's what NetSuite does, it does it really well. Manages financials, human resources, inventory and supply. If you do that kind of thing, if you sell a kind of thing, and if you sell that kind of thing online, it also does e-commerce, is much, much more, much, much more cool stuff. Anyway, you can even check on Reddit. A lot of people are super positive about it. So my 37,000 companies have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle and they're turning 25 this year. Wish them a happy birthday, write them letters, send them faxes, shout from the rooftops, happy birthday. It is always good to celebrate others, celebrate companies, especially when they lasted this long. It's not easy out there for a company. 
So you should let NetSuite make it tiny, tiny, tiny bit easier for you. Download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist for free at netsuite.com slash lex. That's netsuite.com slash lex for your own KPI checklist. This episode is brought to you by ExpressVPN. I use them to protect my privacy on the internet. I've used them for many years. You know, it's the privacy thing, for sure. It's also the happiness thing. I press the button, turns on, I pick a location. Instantaneously, space-time travel, solved. I don't understand what all the hoopla is about, like, uh, faster than uh, light travel is not possible. You click a button, if you click it fast enough, right there, you're a different location, a different country. It opens up uh, all kinds of possibilities. Just press the button, close your eyes, and imagine you're in London among all those people with the fancy accents that make you sound really smart. And uh, that allows you to watch different content that's geographically restricted, for example. But again, I think the privacy thing is really the important thing. Everybody should be using a VPN. ExpressVPN is my favorite one. It's fast, it works on any device, any operating system. Linux is the, the best, the sexiest, most powerful operating system, but not many people use it, maybe because they're not cool. If you wanna be one of the cool kids, you should be using Linux. To this day, Ubuntu is uh, my go-to Linux flavor. It used to be Gen 2, and the reason I say that is because it rhymes with go-to. So you should go to expressvpn.com slash LexPod for an extra three months free. This is the Lex Friedman Podcast. To support it, please check out our sponsors in the description. And now, dear friends, here's Mark Rybert. When did you first fall in love with robotics? Well, I was always a builder. From a from a young age, I was I was lucky. My father was a uh, frustrated uh, engineer, and by that I mean uh, he wanted to be an aerospace engineer, but his mom from the old country thought that that would be like a grease monkey, mm -hmm. and so she said no. So he became an accountant. But the but the result of that was our basement was always full of uh, tools and equipment and electronics and. You know, from a young age, I would watch him uh, assembling a kit, an ICO kit or something like that. I still have a couple of his old ICO kits. And, uh, but it was really uh, during graduate school when uh, uh, I followed uh, a professor back uh, from class. It was uh, Bertolt Horn at MIT, and I was taking a, uh, an interim class. It's IAP, Independent Activities Period. Mm -hmm. And I followed him back to his lab. And on the table was a, a Vicarm robot arm taken apart in probably a thousand pieces. And uh, when I saw that, you know, from that day on, uh, I was a roboticist. Do you remember the year? 1974. 1974. So there's just this arm in pieces. Yeah. And you, you saw the pieces and you saw in your, in your vision the, the, the arm when it's put back together and the possibilities that holds. Somehow it, uh, it spurred my imagination. I had, I was in the uh, brain and cognitive sciences department as a graduate student doing neurophysiology. I'd been an electrical engineer as an undergrad at Northeastern. 
And uh, the neurophysiology wasn't really working for me. You know, I, it wasn't conceptual enough. I couldn't see really how by looking at single neurons, you were going to get to a place where you could understand, you know, control systems or thought or anything like that. And, uh, you know, the AI lab was always an appealing, this was before CSAIL, right? This was in the 70s. So mm -hmm. the AI lab was always an appealing idea. And so when I went back to the AI lab with, uh, you know, following him uh, and I saw the arm, I just thought, you know, this is it. It's so interesting. The tension between the, the, the BCS, brain cognitive science approach to understanding intelligence and the robotics approach to understanding intelligence. Well, BCS is now morphed a bit, right? They, they have the Center for Brains, Minds, and Machines, which is uh, trying to bridge that gap. And even when I was there, you know, David Marr was in the AI lab. David Marr had models of the brain that were appealing both to biologists, but also to uh, computer people. So he was a visitor in the AI lab at the time, and I guess he became full-time there. So that was the first time a bridge was made between those two groups. Then the bridge kind of went away, and then there was another time in the 80s. And then recently, uh, you know, the last five or so years, there's been a, a stronger connection. You said you were always kind of a builder. What, what stands out to you in memory of a thing you've built? Maybe a trivial thing that just kind of like inspired, um, inspired you in the possibilities that this direction of work might hold. I mean, we were just doing gadgets when we were kids. Yes. You know, I have a friend. We were taking, uh, you know, the, I don't know if everybody remembers, but fluorescent lights had this uh, little uh, aluminum cylinder. Uh, I can't even remember what it's called now that you needed a starter, I think it was. Uh, and we would take those apart, fill them with match heads, put a tail on it, and make it into little rockets. So it wasn't <laughs> always about function. It was. Well, well, rocket was pretty, pretty much. <laughs> I function. guess that is pretty functional. Yeah. But yeah, I guess that is a question. How much was it about function versus just creating something cool? I think it's a, it's still a balance between those two. Hmm. There was a time though when I was a, I guess I was probably already a professor or maybe late in graduate school when I thought that function was everything and that uh, you know mobility, dexterity, perception, and intelligence those are sort of the function, the key functionalities for robotics. That um, that's what mattered, and nothing else mattered. And I even had uh, kind of this Platonic ideal uh, that a robot—if you just looked at a robot and it wasn't doing anything—it would look like a pile of junk, which a lot of my robots looked like in those in those days. But then when it started moving, you'd get the idea that it—you know—it had some kind of life or some kind of uh, interest in its movement. And I think we purposely even designed the machines, not not worrying about the aesthetics of the of the structure itself. Uh, but then, uh, but then, you know, it turns out that the aesthetics of the thing itself add and combine with, uh, the lifelike things that the robots can do. But the heart of it is, you know, making them do things that are, that are interesting. So one of the things that underlies a lot of your work is that the robots you create, the systems you have created for, for over 40 years now have a kind of they're not cautious. So a lot of robots that people know about move about this world very cautiously, carefully, very afraid of the world. Uh, a lot of the robots you built, especially in the early days, were very aggressive, uh, underactuated. They're hopping. They're, <laughs> they're wild, moving quickly. So what is there a philosophy underlying that? Well, let me tell you about how I got started on legs at all. I, 
when I was still a graduate student, I went to a conference. It was a biological legged locomotion conference, and I think it was in Philadelphia. So it was all biomechanics people, you know, researchers who would look at muscle and maybe neurons and things like that. They weren't so much computational people, but they were more biomechanics. And maybe there were a thousand people there. And I went to a talk, uh, one of the talks, all the talks were about the body of either animals or people and respiration, things like that. But one talk was by a robotics guy mm -hmm. and he showed a six-legged uh, robot that walked very slowly. Um, it always had at least three feet on the ground. So it worked like a table or a chair with tripod stability and it moved really slowly. And I just looked at that and said, wow, that's wrong. You know, that's not, that's not anything like how people and animals work because we bounce and fly. You know, we have to predict what's going to happen in order to keep our balance when we're taking a running step or something like that. We use the springiness in our, in our legs, you know, our muscles and our tendons and things like that as part of the story, you know, the energy circulates. We don't just throw it away mm -hmm. every time. So and I'm not sure I understood all that when I first saw it, but I, I definitely got inspired to say, you know, let's try the opposite. And I didn't have a clue as to how to make a hopping robot work. Not really, you know, not balanced in 3D. Uh, in fact, when I started, it was all just about the energy of bouncing. And I was going to have a springy thing in the leg and some actuator so that you could get an energy uh, regime going of bouncing. And the idea that balance was an important part of it didn't come until a little later. Uh, and then, you know, I made the, the one-legged, uh, the pogo stick robots. Mm -hmm. Now I think that we need to do that in manipulation. If you look at robot manipulation, we've been working, we, a community has been working on it for 50 years. We're nowhere near human levels of manipulation. I mean, we can, you know, it's come along, but I think it's all too safe. And uh, I think trying to break out of that safety thing of static grasping you know if you look at the a lot of work that goes on it's about the geometry of the part and then and then you figure out how to move your hand so that you can position it with respect to that and then you grasp it carefully and then you move it well that's not anything like how people and animals work you know we juggle in our hands we hold multiple objects and can sort them um so now to be fair uh, being more aggressive is going to mean things aren't going to work very well for a while. So it's a long, it's a longer term approach to the problem. Um, but that, and that's just theory now, you know, maybe that won't pay off, but that's sort of how I'm trying to think about it, trying to uh, encourage our group to, to go at it. Well, yeah, I mean, we'll talk about what it means <laughs> to, what is the actual thing we're trying to optimize in, uh, for a robot, you know, sometimes, especially with human robot interaction, maybe, flaws is a good thing. Uh, perfection is not necessarily the right thing to be chasing. Just like you said, maybe maybe being good at fumbling an object, uh, being good at fumbling might be the right thing to optimize versus per perfect modeling of the object and perfect movement of the arm to grasp, grasp that object. Because uh, maybe perfection is not supposed to exist in the real world. I don't know if you know my friend Matt Mason, who's a uh who is the uh, director of the Robotics Institute at Carnegie Mellon, and we go back to graduate school together. But he analyzed um, a movie of Julia Childs doing a cooking thing. And she did, I think he said something like there were 40 different ways that she handled a thing, and none of them was grasping. He would, She would nudge, roll, 
flatten with her, you know, knife, things like that. And none of them was grasping. <laughs> so, okay, let's go back to the early days. First of all, sure. you've, you've uh, created and led the the leg lab, the legendary leg lab at MIT. So what, what was that first hopping robot? Can you? But first of all, the leg lab actually started at Carnegie Mellon. Carnegie Mellon. So I was a professor there starting uh, in 1980, uh, in to about 1986. And uh, so that's where the first hopping machines were built, uh, starting... I guess we got the first one working in about 1982, something like that. That was a simplified one. Then we got a three-dimensional one in 1983. The quadruped that uh, we built at the Leg Lab, the first version, was built in about 1984-5 and really only got going about 86 or so. And it took years of development to get it to really Let's just do. pause here. <laughs> For people who don't know, I'm talking to Mark Weber, founder of Boston Dynamics. But before that, you were a professor developing some of the most incredible robots for 15 years. And before that, of course, a grad student and all that. So you've been doing this for a really long time. So we, you like skipped over this, but like go go to the first hopping robot. There's videos of some of this. I mean, these are incredible robots. So you talked about the, the very first step was to get a thing hopping up and down. Right. And then you realized, well, balancing is the thing you should care about and it's actually a solvable problem so you, can you just go through how to create that robot what was what sure what was involved in creating that robot well i'm going to start on the not the technical side mm -hmm. but the uh i guess we could call it the motivational side or sure. the funding side <laughs> so before carnegie mellon i was actually at jpl at the jet propulsion lab for three years and while i was there i connected up with uh, ivan sutherland who is sometimes regarded as the father of computer graphics because of work he did both at MIT and then University of Utah and Evans and Sutherland. Anyway, um, I got to know him. And at one point he said, uh, he encouraged me to uh, do some kind of project uh, at Caltech, even though I was at JPL, you know, those are kind of related institutions. And uh, so I, I thought about it. Uh, and I made up a list of three possible projects. Mm -hmm. And I purposely made the top one and the bottom one really boring sounding. And in the middle, I put a pogo stick robot. And when he looked at it, you know, Ivan is a, a brilliant, uh, you know, brilliant guy, brilliant engineer, and a real cultivator of people. He looked at it and knew right away what the thing that was worth doing. And so he, you know, he had an endowed chair. So he had about $3,000 that he gave me to build the first model, which I went, you know, I went to the shop and with my own hands kind of made a first model, which, which didn't work uh, and was just, you know, a, a beginning uh, shot at it. And uh, Ivan and I took that to Washington. And in those days, you could just walk into DARPA and walk down the hallway and see who's there. Yeah. And Ivan, who had been there in his previous life. And so we walked around and uh, we looked in offices. Of course, I didn't know anything. You know, I was basically a kid, but Ivan made his way around. And we found Craig Fields uh, in his office. Craig later became the director of DARPA, but in those days, he was a program manager. Mm -hmm. And so we went in. I had a little Samsonite suitcase, which we opened, and it had just the skeleton of this uh, one-legged hopping robot, and we showed it to him. And uh, you could almost see the drool going down his chin of excitement. And he sent me $250,000. He said, okay, uh, I'll, uh, I want to fund this. 
Uh, and I was between institutions. I was just about to leave JPL, and I hadn't decided yet where I was going next. And then when I landed at CMU, he sent two hundred fifty thousand dollars, which in nineteen eighty was a lot of a lot of research money. Did you see the possibility of where this is going? Why this is an important problem? <laughs> no, <laughs> the balance. I mean, it's legged. It, it has to do with legged locomotion. I mean, it has to do with all these problems that 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 are that the human body solves when we're walking, for example. Like all the fundamentals are there. Yeah, I mean, I think that was the motivation to try and get more at the fundamentals of how animals work. But the idea that it would result in you know machines that were anything like practical. Uh, like we're making now, that that wasn't anywhere in my head. No, you know, as an academic, I was mostly just trying to do the next thing. You know, uh, make some progress, impress my colleagues if I could, and have fun. And have fun. Pogo yeah. stick robot. Pogo stick robot. So, what was on the technical side? What are the, some of the challenges of getting up, getting to the point where we saw, like in the video, the the pogo stick robot that's actually successfully hopping and then eventually doing flips and all this kind of stuff. Well, in the very early days, I needed some better engineering than I had than I could do myself, and I hired uh, Ben Brown. You know, we we each had our way of contributing to the design, and we came up with a thing that could could start to work. I had some stupid ideas about how the actuation system should work, and uh, we you know we sorted that out. It wasn't that hard to make it balance once you get the the physical machine to be working well enough uh, and have enough control over the degrees of freedom. Uh, and then we very quickly, you know, we started out by having it floating on an inclined air table. And then, uh, that only gave us like six foot of travel. So once it started working, we switched to a thing that could run around the room on a, another device. It's hard to explain these without you seeing them, but you, you probably know what I'm talking about, mm -hmm. a planarizer. And, uh, and then the next big step was to make it work in 3D, which that was really the scary part. With these simple things, you know, people had inverted pendulums at the time for for years, and they could control them by driving a cart back and forth. But could you make it work in three dimensions while it's bouncing and all that? And uh, but it turned out, you know, not to be that hard to do, uh, at least at the level of performance we achieved at the time. So, okay, you mentioned inverted pendulum, but like, uh, can you explain how a hopping stick in three D can control can balance itself? Yeah, sure. what are, what what does the actuation look like? Uh, you know, the simple story is that there's three things going on. There's something making it bounce, and you know, we we had a system that was uh, estimating how high the robot was off the ground, and using that, you know, uh, there's energy that can be in three places in a in a pogo stick. One is in the spring, one is in the altitude, and the other is in the velocity. Mm -hmm. And so, when at the top of the hop, it's all in the, the height. And so you could just measure how high you're going and thereby, thereby have an idea of a lot about the cycle and you could decide whether to put more energy in or less. So that's one element. Then there's a part that you decide where to put the foot. And if you think when you're landing on the ground with respect to the center of mass, so if you think of a pole vaulter, the key thing the pole vaulter has to do is get its body to the right place when the pole gets stuck. If they're too far forward, uh, they kind of get thrown backwards. If they're too far back, they go you know, over. And what they need to do is get it so that they go mostly up to get over the thing. And you know, high jumpers is the same kind of thing. So there's a calculation about where to put the foot, and we did something you know, relatively simple. Uh, 
And then there's a third part to keep the body at an attitude that's upright. Because if it gets too far, you know, you could hop and just keep <laughs> rotating around. But if it gets too far, then you run out of motion of the joints at the hips. So you have to do that. And we did that by applying a torque between the legs and the body every time the foot's on the ground. You only can do it while the foot's on the ground. Mm-hmm. In the air, you know, it, 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 the physics don't work out. How far does it have to tilt before it's too late to be able to balance itself? Or it's impossible to balance itself, correct itself? Well, you're, you're asking an interesting question because um, in those days, we didn't actually optimize things. And they probably could have gone much further than we did and then had higher performance. And we just kind of got, you know, a sketch of a solution and worked on that. And then in years since, some people working for us, some people working for others, people came up with all kinds of uh, equations for, or, you know, algorithms for how to do a better job, be able to go faster. Uh, one of my students worked on getting things to go faster. Another one worked on uh, climbing over obstacles. Because when you're running, it's one on the open ground, it's one thing. If you're running like up a stair, Uh, you have to adjust where you are, otherwise things don't work out right. You land your foot on the edge of the step. So there's other degrees of freedom to control if you're getting to you know more realistic, practical situations. I think it's really interesting to ask about the early days because you know believing in yourself, believing that there's something interesting here, and then you mentioned find, finding somebody else, Ben Brown. What's that like? Finding other people with whom you can build this crazy idea and actually make it work. Probably the smartest thing I ever did <laughs> is to find the other people. Yeah. I mean, when I look at it now, you know, I look at Boston Dynamics and all the really excellent engineering there, you know, people who really make stuff work. You know, I'm I'm only the the dreamer. So when you talk about pogo stick robot or legged robots, whether it's quadrupeds or humanoid robots, did people doubt that this is possible? Did you experience a lot of people around you kind of I don't I don't know if they doubted whether it was possible, but I think they thought it was a waste of time. <laughs> oh, it's not even an interesting problem. Were- I think for a lot of people, you know, people who were I think it's been it's been both though. Some people I think I felt like they were saying, Oh, you know, why are you wasting your time on this stupid problem? And then but then I've been at many things where uh people have told me it's been an inspiration to uh to go out and uh, you know, attack these uh these harder things. And and I think it has turned out, I think legged locomotion has turned out to be a useful thing. Did you ever have like doubt about bringing Atlas to life, for example, or or, or with Big Dog, just every step of the way, did you have doubt like, what, what this, is, this is too hard of a problem? I mean, at first I wasn't an enthusiast for the humanoids because again, it goes back to saying, what's the functionality? And the form wasn't as important as the functionality Uh, and I, and also, you know, there's a, an aspect to humanoid robots that's about, uh, all about the cosmetics where there isn't really other functionality. And that kind of is off-putting for me, uh, as a roboticist, I think the functionality really matters. So probably that's why I avoided, uh, human robots, humanoid robots to start with. But I'll tell you, um, now, you know, after we started working on them, you could see that the, the connection and the impact with with uh, other people, whether they're lay people or even other technical people, uh, there's a there's a, a special thing that goes on. Uh, even though most of the humanoid robots aren't that much like a person. But we anthropomorphize <laughs> and we see That's right. the humanity 
but also like with uh, with Spot, you can see not the humanity, but the whatever we find compelling about social interactions there in Spot as well. I'll tell you, you know, I go around giving talks and take Spot to to a lot of them, and it's amazing. The media likes to say that they're terrifying and and that people are afraid, and and YouTube commenters like to say that it's frightening. But when you take a spot out there, you, now maybe it's self-selecting, but you get a crowd of people who want to take pictures, want to pose for selfies, want to operate the robot, want to pet it, want to put clothes on it. Uh, it's amazing. Yeah, I love spot. So if we uh, move around history a little bit. So you said, I think in the early days of Boston Dynamics that you quietly worked on making uh, a running version of iBo. Yeah, yeah. Sony's robot dog. Yeah. It's just an interesting... Uh, <laughs> little tidbit of history for me um what 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 like what stands out to your memory from that task for, for people who don't know that little dog robot moves slowly how did that become big dog what was involved there what was the dance between how do we make this cute little dog versus a thing that can actually carry a lot of payload and move fast and stuff like that what the connection was is that at that point boston dynamics was mostly a physics-based simulation company so when i left mit to start Boston Dynamics. You know, there was a few years of overlap, but the concept wasn't to start a robot company. The concept was to use this uh, dynamic simulation tool that we developed to do robotics to, for other things. Uh, but working with Sony, we got back into robotics uh, by doing the IBO runner, by we programmed, we made some tools for programming Curio, uh, which was a small, a humanoid this big, uh, that could do some dancing and and other kinds of fun stuff, and I don't think it ever reached the market, even though they they did show it. Um, you know, when I look back, I say that we got us back where we belonged. Yeah, you, know? you rediscovered the soul of the company. That's right. And so from there, it was always about robots. Yeah. Uh, so you started Boston Dynamics in 1992, right? Uh, what are some fond memories from the early days? Uh, one of the robots that we built wasn't wasn't actually a robot. It was a surgical simulator, but it had force feedback, so it had all the techniques of robotics. Mm -hmm. And you looked down into this uh, mirror; it actually was, and it looked like you were looking down onto the body you were working on. Mm -hmm. Your hands were underneath the mirror, so there were where you were looking, and you had tools in your hands that were connected up to these force feedback devices made by. Uh, another MIT spin out sensible technologies. So they made the force feedback device, we attached the tools and we wrote all the software and did all the graphics. So we had 3D computer graphics. It was in the old days when, this was in the late 90s, when you had uh, a silicon graphics computer that was about this big. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it was the heater in the office basically. Nice. Nice. And, uh, and we were doing uh, surgical operations, anastomosis, which was, uh, stitching tubes together, you know, tubes like blood vessels or other things in their body. And you could feel and you could see the tissues move. And it was really exciting. And the idea was to make a trainer to teach surgeons how to do stuff. We built a scoring system because we interviewed uh, surgeons that told us, you know, what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do. You're not supposed to tear the tissue. You're not supposed to touch it in any place except for where you're trying to engage. There were a bunch of rules. Mm -hmm. So we built this thing and took it to a trade show, uh, a surgical trade show. And the surgeons were practically lined up. Well, we, we kept the score and we posted their scores like on a video game. And those guys are so competitive that they really, uh, 
really loved doing it. And they would come around and they see someone's score was higher there, so they would come back. But we figured out shortly after that we thought surgeons were going to pay us to get trained on these things. And the surgeons thought we should pay them in order to, uh, so they could teach us about the thing. And th there was no money from the surgeons. Yeah. And we looked at it and thought, well, maybe we could sell it to hospitals that would teach, train their surgeons. And then we said, well, we're this, at the time we were probably a 12 person company or maybe 15 people, I don't remember. Uh, you know, there's no way we could go after a marketing activity. You know, the company was all bootstrapped in those years. We we never had investors until Google bought us, which was after 20 years. So we didn't have any resources to uh, to go after hospitals. So we at one sort of at one day, Rob and I were looking at that, and we said uh, we'd built another simulator for knee arthroscopy, mm -hmm. and we said this isn't going to work, and we killed it, and we moved on. And that was really a milestone in the company because we, you know, we sort of understood who we were and uh, and what would work and what wouldn't. Even though technically it was really a fascinating thing. What was that meeting like? Were you just like sitting at a table? You know what? <laughs> Probably <laughs> we're, we're going to pivot completely. <laughs> we're going to let go of this thing we put so much hard work into, and then it go back a, to the thing. It just came always from. felt right when, yeah. once we did it. You know. Just look at each other and said, let's, let's build robots. Yeah. What was the first robot you built under the, the flag of Boston Dynamics? Big Dog? Well, there was the uh, Ivo uh, runner, but it wasn't even a whole robot. It was just legs that we, we took off the legs on Ibos and attached uh, legs we'd made. And, um, you know, we got that working and showed it to the Sony people. Uh, we worked pretty closely with Sony in those years. One of the interesting things is that, uh, it was before the internet and Zoom and anything like that. Mm -hmm. So we had six ISDN lines installed, and we would have a telecon every week that worked at very low frame rate, something like 10 hertz. Uh, you know, English across the boundary with uh, Japan was a challenge, trying to understand what, what each of us was saying and have meetings every week uh, for, for several years uh, doing that. And... Uh, it was a pleasure working with them. They were really supporters. They they seemed to like us and what we were doing. That was the real transition from us being a simulation company into being a robotics company again. It was a quadruped? The, the legs were four yeah. legs or two legs? Yeah, no, four, four legs. legs, yeah. And what did you learn from that experience of uh, building a, basically a fast-moving quadruped? Mostly we learned that something that small uh, doesn't look very exciting when it's running. It's like it's scampering, and you had to you had to watch a slow mo for it to look like it was interesting. If you watch it fast, it was just like a. That's you know, funny. One of my things was to show stuff in video, even yeah. from the very early days of the hopping machines, um, and so I was always focused on how's this going to look through the viewfinder. And uh, running Ibo didn't look so cool through the viewfinder. So uh, what what came next in terms of? Uh, what was a big next milestone in terms of a robot you built? I mean, you got to say that Big Dog was, you know, sort of put us on the map and got our heads really pulled together. We scaled up the company. Big Dog was the result of uh, Alan Rudolph at DARPA uh, starting a biodynotics program. And he put out a, you know, a request for proposals. And, uh, I think there were 42 proposals written and three got funded. One was Big Dog, one was a climbing robot, Rise, 
And you know that put things in motion. We we hired uh, Martin Bueller. He was a, a professor at Mon- in Montreal at uh, McGill. He was uh, incredibly important for getting Big Dog uh, out of the lab and into the mud, which is a you know was a key step to really be willing to go out there and uh, and build it, break it, fix it, which is sort of one of our mottos at the company. So testing it in the real world. For testing people, for people who don't know Big Dog. Maybe you can correct me, but it's a it's a big quadruped, four leg robot. That it looks big, could probably carry a lot of weight. Not the most weight that Boston Dynamics no. have built, but a lot. Well, it's the first thing that worked. So let's see, if we go back to the leg lab, we'd built a quadruped mm-hmm. that could do many of the things that Big Dog did, but it had uh, a hydraulic pump sitting in the room with hoses connected to the robot. Mm-hmm. It had a VAX computer in the next room. It needed its own room because it was this giant thing with air conditioning, and it had this very complicated uh, bus connected to the robot. And the robot itself just had the actuators. It had gyroscopes for sensing and other some other sensors. Uh, but all the power and computing was off-board. Big Dog had all that stuff integrated uh, on the platform. It had a gasoline engine for power, which was a very complicated thing to, to undertake. It had to convert the rotation of the engine into hydraulic power, which is how we uh, actuated uh, it. So there was a lot of learning just on the uh, you know building the physical robot and and uh, the system integration uh, for that, and then there was the controls uh, of it. So for Big Dog, you brought it all together onto one platform, right? And then so you could you can you could take it out in the woods, yeah. You could, and you did. We did. <laughs> we spent a lot of time down at the uh, Marine Corps base in Quantico, where there was a trail called uh, the Guadalcanal Trail, and our uh milestone that DARPA had specified was that we could go on this one particular trail that involved, you know, a lot of challenge. And we spent a lot of time, our team spent a lot of time down there. Hiking. Those were fun days. Hiking with the robot. Hiking so what, the what, robot. what did you learn about like what it takes to balance a robot like that on a trail, on a hiking trail in the woods? Basically, forget the woods, just the real world. That's the big leap into testing in the real world. Yeah. As challenging as the woods were, Mm -hmm. working inside of a home or Mm -hmm. in an office is really harder. (laughs) Yeah. Because when you're in the woods, you can actually take any path up the up the hill. All you have to do is avoid the obstacles. You there's no such thing as damaging the woods, at least, you know, to first order. Whereas if you're in a house, you can't leave scuff marks, you can't bang into the walls. The robots aren't very comfortable bumping into the walls, especially in the early days. So I think those were actually bigger challenges once once we faced them. Uh, it was mostly you know getting the systems uh, to work well enough together, the the hardware systems to work, and and the controls. In those days, we did have a human operator who did all the visual perception uh, going up the Guadalcanal Trail. So you know, there was an operator who was right there who was very skilled at even though the robot was balancing itself and placing its own feet. Uh, if the operator didn't do the right thing, it wouldn't go. But years later, we went back with uh, one of the electric, the pre- precursor to Spot, and uh, we had advanced the controls and everything so much that uh, an amateur, complete amateur, could operate the robot f- the first time up and down and up and down, whereas it had taken us years to to get there in the previous robot. So if you fast forward, Big Dog eventually became Spot. So Big Dog became LS3, which is the big load-carrying one. Just just a quick pause. It can carry four hundred pounds, 
It was designed to carry 400, but we had it carrying about a thousand pounds. Of course you did. <laughs> Just we to had, make sure. We had one carrying the other one. We had two of them. So we had one carrying the other one. There's a little clip of that. We should put that out somewhere. Yeah. That's from like 20 years ago. But Wow. Wow. And it, it can go for very long distances. It can travel 20 miles. Yeah. Uh, gasoline. Gasoline. Yeah. And that, that adventure just, okay, sorry. So LS3, then what? Uh, how did that lead to spot? So Big Dog and LS3 had uh, engine power and hydraulic actuation. Then we made uh, a robot that was electric uh, power. So there's a battery driving a motor, driving a pump, but still hydraulic actuation. Yeah. Larry sort of asked us, could you make something that weighed 60 pounds that would not be so intimidating if you had it in a house? Uh, where there were people. And that was the inspiration behind uh, the spot, pretty much as it exists today. We did a prototype the same size that was the first all-electric, um, non-hydraulic non robot. What was the conversation with Larry Page like about, so he, he, here's a guy that kind of is very product-focused and can, can see a vision for like what the future holds. That's just interesting kind of aside. What was the brainstorm about the future of robotics with him like? I mean, it was almost as simple as what I just said. He, we, you know, we were having make a smaller? meeting. He <laughs> said, "Yeah, geez, could, you know, do you think you could make a smaller one that wouldn't be so intimidating? Well, you know, like a big dog, yeah. Uh, if it was in your house." And I said, "Yeah, we could do that." And we started and and did. Is there a lot of technical challenges to go from hydraulic to electric? You know, I had been in love with hydraulics and still uh, love hydraulics. Uh, you know, it's it's a great technology. It's too bad that the somehow the the world out there looks at it like it's old fashioned or that it's um, icky. And it's true that you do. It is very hard to keep it from having some amount of dripping from time to time. Uh, but if you look at the performance, uh, you know how strong you can get in a lightweight package. And of course, we did a huge amount of innovation. Most of hydraulic. Uh, control that is the valve that controls the flow of oil had been designed in the 50s for airplanes. Mm -hmm. It had been made robust enough, safe enough that you could count on it so that humans could fly in airplanes. And very little innovation had happened. You know, that might not be fair to the people who make the valves. I'm sure that they did innovate, but the basic design had stayed the same. And there was so much more you could do. And so our engineers designed valves, uh, the ones that are in uh, uh, in Atlas, for instance, that had new kinds of circuits. They sort of did some of the computing that could get you much more efficient use. They were much smaller and lighter so that the whole robot could be smaller and lighter. Uh, we made a hydraulic power supply that had a bunch of components integrated in this tiny package. It's about this big, you know, the size of a football, it weighs five uh, kilograms and it produces five kilowatts of power. Of course, it has to have a battery uh, operating, but it's got a motor, a pump, filters, heat exchanger to keep it cool, some valves, all of it, all in this tiny little package. So hydraulics, you know, could still have a ways to go. One of the things that stands out about the robots Boston Dynamics have created is how beautiful the movement is, how natural the walking is and running is, even flipping is, throwing is. So maybe you can talk about what what's involved in making it look natural. Well, I think having good hardware is part of the story and 
people who think you don't need to innovate hardware anymore are wrong, in my opinion. Um, so I think one of the things, certainly in the early years, for me, taking a dynamic approach where you think about what's the evolution of the motion of the thing going to be uh, in the future and having a prediction of that that's used at the time that you're giving signals to it, as opposed to it all being servoing, which is servoing is sort of backward looking. It says, okay, where am I now? I'm going to I'm going to try and adjust for that. But you really need to think about what's coming. So how far ahead do you do you have to look in time? Uh, it's interesting. I think that the number is only a couple of seconds for spot. So there's a limited horizon uh, type approach where you're recalculating, assuming what's going to happen in the next uh, second or second and a half. And then you keep iterating, you know, at the next, even though a tenth of a second later, you'll say, okay, let's do that again and see what's happening. And you're looking at what the obstacles are, where the feet are going to be placed, how to, you know, you have to coordinate a lot of things if you have obstacles and you're balancing at the same time. And it's that uh, limited horizon type calculation that's doing a lot of that. But if you're doing something like a somersault, you're looking out a lot further, right? If you want to stick the landing, yeah. you have to get the you, know, you have to at the time of launch have uh, you know momentum and uh, uh, rotation, all those things coordinated so that a landing is within reach. How hard is it to stick a landing? I mean, that's very much underactuated. Like you, once you've in the air, you don't have as much control about anything. So, how hard is it? To get that to work, you first of all did flips with a hopping robot. If you look at the first time we ever made a robot do a somersault, it was in a planar robot. You know, it had a boom, uh, so it could only it was restricted to the surface of a sphere. We call that planar. So it could move fore and aft. It could go up and down, and it could rotate. And so the calculation of what you need to do to get a to stick a landing isn't all that complicated. You have to look at you know. You have to get time to make the rotation. So how hard you jump, how high you jump gives you time. Uh, you look at how quickly you can rotate. And so, you know, if you get those two right, then when you land, you have the feet in the right place. And you have to get rid of all that rotational and uh, linear momentum. But, you know, that's not too hard to figure out. And we made, you know, back in uh, about 1985 or six, I can't remember, we had a simple robot doing somersaults. To do it in 3D, really the calculation is the same. You just have to be balancing in the other degrees of freedom. If you're just doing a somersault, it's just a, a planar thing. Ron Rob was my graduate student and we were at MIT, which is when we made you know, a two-legged robot do a 3D somersault for the first time. Um, there, we, in order to get enough rotation rate, you needed to do tucking also. Uh, you know, withdraw the legs in order to accelerate it. And he did some really fascinating work on on how you stabilize more complicated maneuvers. You remember he was a gymnast, a champion gymnast before he'd come to me. So he had <laughs> he had the physical abilities and he was a, you know, an engineer so he could translate some of that into the math and the algorithms that you need to to do that. He knew how humans do it. He just yeah. had to get robots yeah. to do the same. Unfortunately though, when you, humans don't really know how they do it. Yeah. Right? We we're That's coached, right. we we have ways of learning, but do we really understand in a physical, in a physics way, uh, what we're doing? Probably most gymnasts and athletes don't know. So in some way, by <laughs> building robots, you are in part understanding how humans do, like walking, 
most of us walk without considering how we walk, really. Right. And how we make it so natural and efficient, all those kinds of Atlas things. Atlas still doesn't walk like a person, and it still doesn't walk quite as gracefully as a person, even though it's been getting closer and closer. The running might be close to a human, but the walking is still a, a challenge. That's interesting, right? The, that running is closer to a human. It just shows that the more aggressive and kind of, the more you leap into the unknown, the more natural it is. I mean, walking is kind of falling always, right? And something weird about the knee that you can kind of do this folding and unfolding and get it to work out just, a human can get it to work out just right. There's compliances. Compliance means springiness in the, yeah, in yeah. the design that are important to yes, how it yes. all works. Well, we used to have a motto at uh, Boston Dynamics in the early days, which was that you have to run before you can walk. <laughs> uh, that's, a, that's a good motto. Because uh, you also had Wildcat, mm -hmm. which was one of the, along the way towards Spot, which is a quadruped that went 19 miles an hour right. on flat terrain. Is that the fastest you've ever built? Oh, yeah. Might be the fastest quadruped in the world. I don't know. For a quadruped, probably. Of course, it was probably the loudest, too. So we had this little racing go-kart engine on it. And we would get people from, you know, three buildings away uh, sending us, you know, complaining about how loud it was. So at the leg lab, I believe most of the robots didn't have knees. <laughs> how, what's the, how do you figure out what is the right number of actuators? What, what are the joints to have? What do you need to have? Uh, you know, we humans have knees and all kinds of interesting stuff on the feet. The toe is an important part, I guess, for humans. Or maybe it's not. I injured my toe recently, and it made running very unpleasant. Mm -hmm. So that seems to be kind of important. Mm -hmm. So how do you figure out for efficiency, for function, for aesthetics, mm -hmm. uh, how many joints to have, how many actuators to have? Well, it's always a balance between wanting to get where you really want to get and what's practical to do based on uh, your resources or what you know and all that. So, I mean, the whole idea of the of the pogo stick was to do a simplification. Obviously, it didn't look like a human. I think uh, a technical scientist could appreciate that we were capturing some of the things that are important in human locomotion without it looking uh, like it, without having a knee and ankle. I'll tell you the first sketch that Ben Brown made uh, when we were talking about building this thing was a very complicated thing with zillions of springs, lots of joints. It looked like much more like a, a, a kangaroo or a, or an ostrich or something like that, things we were paying a lot of attention to at the time. Um, you know, so my job was to uh, say, okay, well, let's do something simpler to get started and maybe we'll get there at some point. I just love the idea that you you, you two were studying kangaroos and ostriches. Oh yeah, we we did uh, we filmed and, and digitized uh, uh, data from horses. I did I did a dissection of a ostrich at one point, which has absolutely remarkable legs. Dumb question: uh, Do ostriches have like mus mus a lot of musculature on the legs or no? Most of it's up in the feathers, but there's a huge amount going on in the feathers, including. A knee joint. The knee joint's way up there. The thing that's halfway down the leg that looks like a backwards knee is actually the ankle. The wow. thing on the f ground, which looks like the foot, is actually the toes. It's an extended toe. Fascinating. But you know, the basic morphology is in the, is the same in in uh, all these animals. What do you think is uh, the most beautiful 
movement of an animal? Like what animal you think is the coolest? <laughs> Land animal. That's cool. Because fish is pretty cool. Like the way uh, fish moves the water, but like yeah. legged locomotion. You know, the slow-mos of cheetahs running are are incredible. You know, they're they there's so much back motion and uh you know, grace and they're of course they're moving very fast. Uh the animals running away from the cheetah are pretty exciting. You know, the pronghorn uh which you know they they do this uh, all four legs at once jump called a pronk to kind of confuse the especially if there's a group of them to confuse whoever's chasing them. So they do like a misdirection type of thing. Yep, they do a misdirection thing. The front on views of the cheetahs running fast, where the tail is whipping around to help in the turns to help us stabilize in the turns. That's that's pretty exciting because they spend a lot of time in the air, I guess. Yeah, they're running that fast, but they also turn very fast. Is that a tail thing, or is that do you have to have contact with the ground? Uh, everything in the body is probably helping turn because they're chasing something that's trying to get away. That's also zigzagging around. But I, I I would be remiss if I didn't say you know humans are are pretty <laughs> right. pretty good too. You know, you watch gymnasts, uh, especially these days, they're doing just incredible uh, stuff. Well, like especially like Olympic level. Gymnast, see, but there could be I th- there could be cheetahs that are Olympic level. We might be watching <laughs> the average cheetah versus like that could be a, like a really special cheetah that can do like you're right. When did the knees first come into play in in you building legged robots? Uh, in big dog, big dog, yeah, big dog came first, and then little dog was later. And you know there was a there's a big compromise there. Uh, human knees have multiple muscles and. You could argue that there's, uh, I mean, it's a technical thing about negative work. Uh, when you're when you're contracting a joint, but you're pushing out, that's mm-hmm. negative work. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have a place to store that, it can be very expensive to do negative work. And in most of and in big dog, there was no place to store negative work uh, in the knees. But big dog also had pogo stick. Uh, springs down below. So part of the action was to comply in a bouncing motion. You know, later on in spot, we we took that out. And as we got further and further away from the leg lab, uh, we had more, uh, you know, energy-driven controls. Is there something to be said about like knees that go f- uh, <laughs> forward versus backward? Sure. There's this idea uh, called uh, passive dynamics, which says that although Although you can use computers and actuators to make a motion, a, me- a mechanical system can make a motion just by itself if it gets stimulated the right way. Uh, so uh, Tad McGear in the, uh, I think in the mid 80s, uh, maybe it was in the late 80s, starting to, started to work on that. And he made this uh, legged system that could walk down an inclined plane where the legs folded and unfolded and swung forward, you know, do the, the whole walk, walking motion, where the only th- there was no computer. There were some adjustments to the mechanics so that there were dampers and springs in some places that helped the, uh, the mechanical action happen. It was essentially a mechanical computer. And the idea, the interesting idea there is that it's not all about the brain uh, telling, dictating to the body what the body should do. The body is a participant in the motion. So a, a great design for a robot has a mechanical component where the movement is efficient even without a brain. Yes. How do you design that? I think that these days most robots aren't doing that. Most robots are are basically using the computer to to govern the motion. Mm-hmm. Now the 
the brain though is taking into account what the mechanical thing can do uh, and how it's going to behave. Otherwise, it would have to really forcefully move everything around all the time, which probably some solutions do. But I think you end up with a more efficient and more graceful thing if you're taking into account what the what the machine wants to do. So this might be a good place to mention that you're now uh, leading up the the Boston Dynamics AI Institute, newly formed which is focused more on designing the robots of the future. And I think one of the things, maybe you can tell me the big vision for what's going on, but uh, one of the things is uh, this idea that hardware still matters with, with organic design and so on. Maybe before that, can you zoom out and tell me what the vision is for the AI Institute? You know, I like to talk about intelligence having two parts, an athletic part, and a uh, cognitive part. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think, you know, Boston Dynamics, in my view, has sort of set the standard for uh, what athletic intelligence can be. And, you know, it has to do with all the things we've been talking about, the, the mechanical design, the, the real-time control, the energetics, and that kind of stuff. But obviously, uh, people have another kind of intelligence, and, and animals have another kind of intelligence. You know, we can make a plan. Uh, our meeting started at, at 9.30. I looked up on Google Maps how long it took to walk over here. It was you know, 20 minutes. So uh, I decided, okay, I'd leave my house at nine, which is what I did. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Simple intelligence, but we use that kind of stuff all the time. It's sort of what we think of as going on in our heads. Um, and I think that's in short supply for robots. Most robots are pretty dumb. And as a result, it takes a lot of skilled people to program them to do everything they do and it takes a long time and if robots are gonna you know satisfy our dreams uh, they need to be smarter uh, so the AI Institute is designed to combine that physicality of the athletic side with uh, the cognitive side so for instance we're trying to make robots that can watch a human do a task uh, understand what it's seeing, and then do the task itself. So sort of OJT for on-the-job training for mm -hmm. robots mm -hmm. uh, as a paradigm. Uh, now, you know, that's pretty hard, uh, and it's it's sort of science fiction, but our idea is to work on a longer time frame and, and work on uh, solving those kinds of problems. And I have a whole list of things that are kind of like in that, in that vein. Maybe we can just take... Many of the things you mentioned, just take it as a tangent. Okay. First of all, athletic intelligence is a super cool term. Uh, and that's that really is intelligence. We humans kind of take it for granted that we're so good at walking and moving about the world. And using our hands, you know, hands. the mechanics of interacting with all, you know, these parts, you know, yeah. these two things, yeah. you know. And you've I'm never not, touched I'm, those I'm things before, look, right? Touched, well, I've touched ones like this. Okay. Look, look at all the <laughs> things I can it. do, right? I can juggle them. I'm rotating yeah. it this way. I can rotate it without looking. Mm -hmm. I could fetch these things out of my pocket and figure out which one was which and all mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. Yeah. And uh, I don't think we have much of a clue how all that works yet. Right. And that's, I really like putting that under the banner of athletic uh, intelligence. What are the big open problems in athletic intelligence? So Boston Dynamics uh, with Spot, with Atlas, just have shown time and time again, like push the limits of what we think is possible with robots. But where do we stand actually? If we kind of zoom out, what are the big open problems on the athletic intelligence side? 
I mean, one question you could ask that isn't my question, but you know, are they commercially uh, viable? Mm-hmm. Uh, could will they increase productivity? Yeah, and I think you know we're getting very close to that. Uh, I don't think we're quite there still. You know, most of the robotics companies, it's it's a uh, it's a struggle. You know, it's really the lack of the cognitive side that probably is the biggest barrier at the moment, even for the physically successful robots. But uh, you know, your questions are good. I mean, you can always do a thing that's uh, more efficient, uh, lighter, more reliable. I'd say reliability. You know, I know that Spot they've been working very hard uh, on getting the the tail of the reliability curve up and they've made huge progress. So the robots, you know, there's a uh, 1500 of them out there now, uh, many of them being used in uh, practical applications day in and day out uh, where, you know, where they have to work reliably. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's very exciting that they've done that, but it takes a huge effort to get that kind of reliability uh, in the robot. There's cost too, you know, you'd like uh-huh. to get the cost down. Uh, spots are still pretty expensive, uh, and I don't think that they have to be, but it takes you know a different kind of activity to do that. Mm-hmm. Now that uh, you know, I think you know that uh, Boston Dynamics is owned primarily by uh, Hyundai now, and I think that the skills of Hyundai in making cars can be brought to bear in uh, uh, making robots that are less expensive and more reliable and those kinds of things. So on the cognitive side, uh, for the AI Institute, what's what's the trade-off between moonshot projects for you and maybe incremental progress? That's a good question. I think we're we're using the paradigm called stepping stones to moonshots. I don't I don't believe and that that was in my original proposal for the mm. institute, stepping stones to moonshots. I think if you go more than a year without seeing a tangible status report of where you are. Which is the stepping stone, uh, and it could be a simplification, right? You don't necessarily have to solve all the problems of your target goal, even though your target goal is going to take several years. Uh, you know, those those stepping stone results give you feedback, uh, give motivation because usually there's some success in there, uh, and so you know that's the mantra uh, we've been working on, and that's pretty much how uh, you know I'd, I'd say Boston Dynamics has worked. Uh, you know, where the, you make progress uh, uh, and show it as you go. Show it to yourself, if not to the world. What does success look like? Like, What, what are the, some of the milestones you're, uh, you're chasing? Well, we've, we've, with Watch, Understand, Do, the project I mentioned before, you know, we've broken that down into uh, getting some progress with what is meaningfully watching something mean, uh, breaking down uh, an observation of a person doing something into the components you know segment segmenting you know you watch me do something i'm going to pick up this thing and put it down here and stack this on it well it's not obvious if you just look at the raw data uh, uh what the sequence of acts are it's it's really a creative intelligent act for you to to break that down into the pieces and understand them in a way so you could say okay what skill do i need to accomplish each of those things uh, so we're working on you know the front end of of that kind of a problem where we observe and translate the if it, it may be video it may be live into uh, a description of what we think is going on and then try and map that into skills to accomplish that and we've been developing skills as well so you know we have kind of multiple stabs at the pieces of of doing that and this is usually video of humans manipulating objects with their hands kind of thing. Mm-hmm. 
we're starting out with bicycle repair, some simple bicycle repair <laughs> oh, no. tasks. That seems complicated. That seems well, really complicated. It is, but but there's some parts of it that aren't, like uh, putting the seat in, you know, into the, you know, you have a tube that goes inside of another tube, sure. and there's a latch. You know, that's that should be within range. Is it possible to to observe to watch a video like this without having an explicit model of what a bicycle looks like? I think it is. And I think that's the kind of thing that people don't recognize. Let me translate it to navigation. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I think the basic paradigm for navigating a space is to get some kind of sensor that tells you where an obstacle is and what's open, build a map, and then go through the space. But if I if we were doing on the job training where I was giving you a task, I wouldn't have to say anything about the room, right? We came in here, mm -hmm. uh, all we did is adjust the chair, mm -hmm. but we didn't say anything about the room, and you know we could navigate it. So I think there's opportunities to build that kind of navigation skill into robots, uh, and we're you know we're hoping to be able to do that. So operate successfully under a lot of uncertainty, like yeah, and and lack of specification. Lack of specification. I mean, that's what sort of intelligence is, right? Kind of dealing with a understanding a situation, even though it wasn't explained. So, how, how big of a role does machine learning uh, play in all of this? Is this more and more learning based? You know, since ChatGPT, which is a year ago, basically, mm -hmm. uh, there's a huge interest in that and a, and a huge uh, optimism about it. And I think that there's a lot of things that machine learn that kind of machine learning. Now, of course, there's lots of different kinds of machine learning. I think there's a you know a lot of interest and optimism about it. I think the you know the facts on the ground are that doing physical things with physical robots is a little bit different than language, mm -hmm. and uh, the tokens, you know, the tokens sort of don't exist. You know, pixel pixel values aren't like words. Um, but I think that there's a lot that can be done there. We have uh, uh, we have several people working on machine learning approaches. I don't know if you know, but we we opened an office in Zurich uh, recently, mm -hmm. and uh, Marco Hutter, who's one of the real leaders in uh, reinforcement learning for robots, uh, is the the director of that office. He's still half time at uh, ETH, uh, the university there, where he has an unbelievably fantastic lab, and then he's half time uh, leading. Uh, will be leading off efforts in the Zurich office. So we have a healthy uh, learning component, but there's part of me that still says, if you look out in the world at what the most impressive performances are, they're still pretty much, uh, I hate to use the word traditional, but that's what everybody's calling it, traditional controls, like model predictive control. Uh, you know the thing, the the Atlas performances that you've seen are mostly model predictive control. They've started to do some learning stuff that's really incredible. I, I don't know if it's all been shown yet, but mm -hmm. you'll see it over over time. Um, and then Marco has done some great stuff, and and others. So especially for the athletic intelligence piece, uh, the traditional approach seems to be the one that still performs the best. I think we're going to find a, ma a mating of the two and we'll have the best of both worlds. And we're working on that at the Institute too. If I can talk to you about teams, so you've built an incredible team at Boston Dynamics before at MIT and CMU at Boston Dynamics and now at the AI Institute. And, and you said that there's four components to a great team, uh, technical fearlessness, diligence, intrepidness, and fun, technical fun. Can you explain each? Technical fearlessness. What do you mean by that? Sure. 
Uh, technical fearlessness means being willing to take on a problem that you don't know how to solve, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, uh, study it, uh, figure out an ex- an entry point. You know, maybe a simplified version or a simplified solution or something. Learn from the stepping stone and uh, and go back and uh, eventually make a solution that meets your goals. And I think that's really important. The fearlessness comes into play because some of it has never been done before. Yeah, and you don't know how to do it. And, you know, there's the easier stuff to do in life. Uh, so, you know, I mean, I don't know. Watch, understand, do. It's a, it's a mountain of a, of a challenge. So that's the really big challenge you're, you're tackling now. Can we watch humans at scale and have robots by watching humans become effective actors in the world? Yeah. I mean, we have others like that. I, we have one called Inspect, Diagnose, Fix. Like, uh, you know, you uh, call up the Maytag uh, repairman. Okay, he's the one who you don't have to call. But, you, you, you know, you call up the, the dishwasher repair person, and they come to your house, and they look at your machine. It's already been actually figured out that something doesn't work, but they have to kind of examine it and figure out what what's wrong and then fix it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think robots should be able to do that. Uh, we already, Boston Dynamics already has spot robots collecting data on machines, things like thermal data, reading the gauges, listening to them, getting sounds. And that data are used to determine whether they're healthy or not. Mm-hmm. But the interpretation isn't done by the robots yet, and the uh, certainly the the fixing, the diagnosing, and the fixing isn't done yet. But I think it could be, and you know that's bringing the AI and combining it with the physical skills to do it. Yeah, and you're referring to the fixing in the physical world. I can't wait until you can fix the psychological <laughs> problems of humans and show up and oh. just talk, <laughs> do therapy. Yeah, that's a, that's a different thing. Yeah, it's a different. Well, but well, it's all part of the same thing again. Humanity. <laughs> maybe, maybe. You mean uh, convincing you it's okay that the dishwasher's broken? Just do the oh, yeah, that's, <laughs> <laughs> the marketing yes, approach. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's all yeah. Don't sm- don't don't sweat the small stuff. <laughs> yeah, as opposed to fixing the dishwasher, it'll convince you that it's okay that the dishwasher's broken. It's a different approach. Uh, diligence. Why is diligence important? Well, if you want a real robot solution, it can't be. Uh, a very narrow solution that's going to break at the first variation in what the robot does or the environment if it wasn't exactly as you expected it. Mm. So how do you get there? I think uh, having an approach that leaves you unsatisfied until you've embraced the bigger problem is the is the diligence I'm talking about. And uh, again, I'll point at Boston Dynamics. I think they've done it. You know, some of the videos that we had showing the engineer making it hard for the robot to do its task. Uh, spot opening a door, and then the guy gets there and pushes on the door so it doesn't open the way it's supposed to, pulling on the on the rope that's attached to the robot so its navigation has been screwed up. Uh, we have one where the robot's climbing stairs and an uh, engineer is tugging on a rope that's pulling it back down the stairs. You know, that's totally different than just the robot seeing the stairs, making a model putting its feet carefully on each step. But that's what probably robotics needs to succeed. And having that broader that broader idea that you want to come up with a robust solution is what I meant by diligence. So really testing it in all conditions, perturbing the system in all kinds of ways. 
Right. And as a result, creating some epic videos. <laughs> the the legendary. The fun part. The hockey stick. <laughs> and then, yes, tugging on Spot is just trying to open the door. I mean, the, it's it's great testing, but it's also, I don't know, it's just somehow extremely compelling demonstration of robotics in video form. I learned something very early on with the first three-dimensional hopping machine. If you just show a video of it hopping, it's a so what. If you show it falling over a couple of times and you can see how easily and fast it falls over, then you appreciate what the robot's doing when it's when it's doing its thing. So I think, you know, your the reaction you just gave to the door the robot getting kind of uh, interfered with or tested while it's going through the door, it's showing you the scope of the solution. The the limits of the system, the the challenges involved in failure. If the showing both failure and success makes you appreciate the the success, yeah. And then just the way the videos are done in Boston Dynamics are incredible because they're not. There's no flash. There's no extra like production. It's just raw testing of the robot. Well, you know, I was the final edit for most of the videos up until uh, until about three years ago or four years ago. And uh, you know my theory of the video is no no explanation. If they can't see it, then it's not the right thing. And if you do something worth showing, then let them see it. Don't don't interfere with uh, you know a bunch of titles that slow you down or a bunch of distraction. Just you know do something worth showing and then show it. That's brilliant. It's it's hard it's hard though for for people to buy into that. Yeah, I mean, people always want to add more stuff, but the simplicity of just yeah. do something worth showing and show it, that's brilliant. And don't add extra stuff. Yeah, people people have criticized, uh, especially the, the Big Dog videos where there's a human uh, driving the robot. And, and I understand the criticism now. At the time, we wanted to just show, look, this thing's using its legs to get up the hill. So we focused on showing that, which was, we thought, the the story mm -hmm. the fact that there's a human so they were thinking about autonomy whereas we were thinking about the the mobility yeah. uh, and so you know we've we've adjusted to a lot of things that we see that people care about mm -hmm. uh, trying to be honest we've always tried to be honest but also just show cool stuff in this raw form the limits of the system the see the system be perturbed and be robust and resilient and all that kind of stuff and uh, and dancing with some music. Uh, intrepidness and fun, so in intrepid. I mean, it might be the most important ingredient, and sure. that is, you know, robotics is hard. It's not gonna work right, right away, so don't be discouraged is all, all it really needs. Mm -hmm. So usually when I talk about these things, I show videos and I show a long string of outtakes, you know, and you know, you have to have uh, courage to be, to be intrepid when you know you work so hard you built your machine you know and then you're trying and it just doesn't do what you thought it would do what you want it to do and uh you know you have to stick to it and keep trying how long i mean we don't often see that the story behind spot and atlas how long, how many failures was there along the way to get, you know, a working Atlas, a working spot in the early days, even working Big Dog? There's a video of Atlas climbing three big steps, and it's very dynamic, and it's, you know, it's really exciting, real accomplishment. 
it took uh, 109 tries, and we have video of every one of them. You know, we shoot mm -hmm. everything. Again, we this is at Boston Dynamics. Um, uh, so it took 109 tries. But once it did it, it had a high percentage of success. So mm -hmm. it's not like we're cheating by just showing the best one, but we do show the evolved you know, performance, not everything along the way. But the, everything along the way is informative and, you know, it shows sort of, uh, there's, you know, stupid things that go wrong, like, mm -hmm. like the robot just when you say go and it collapses right there on the mm -hmm. start. That doesn't have to do with the steps. Uh, or the perception didn't work right, so you miss the target when you jump or something breaks and there's oil flying everywhere. Uh, but that's fun. Yeah. So the hardware <laughs> failures and, and maybe some software. Lots stuff. of control of evolution during that time. I think it took six weeks to get that those uh, 109 trials, you know, because there was there was uh, programming going on. You know, it was it was actually robot learning, but there were human in the loop helping with the learning. So all data driven. But uh, okay, and so and you always are learning from that failure. So right. And. <laughs> How do you how do you protect Atlas from not getting damaged from 109 uh, attempts? It was re it's remarkable. One of the accomplishments of Atlas is that the engineers have made a machine that's robust enough that it can take that kind of testing where it's falling and stuff, and it doesn't break every time. It still breaks, and we had you know part of the the paradigm is to have people to repair stuff. You got to figure that in if you're going to do this kind of work. Um, you know, I sometimes criticize the people who have their gold-plated thing and they keep it on the shelf and everybody and they're afraid to kind of use it. I don't think you can make progress if you're working that way. You know, you need to be ready to have it break and and go in there and fix it. It's part of the thing. You know, plan your budget so you have spare parts and a crew and all yeah. that stuff. Yeah, if it falls 109 times, it's okay. Wow. Um, so intrepid, truly. And that applies to spot. That applies to all the other applies stuff. to everything. I think it applies to everything anybody tries to do that's worth doing. Yeah, <laughs> and especially with systems in the real world, right? Yeah. Uh, and so fun, fun, technical fun. I usually Tec say. have technical fun. I think that the life as an engineer is really satisfying. Mm -hmm. I think you get to, uh, you know, to some degree. It, it can be like crafts work where you get to do things with your own hands or your own design or whatever your you know your media is and it's very satisfying to be able to just do the work unlike you know a lot of people who have to do something that they don't like doing i think engineers typically get to do something that they that they like and there's a lot of satisfaction from that mm -hmm. then there's um you know in many cases you can have impact uh on the world somehow because you've done something that other people admire which is different from the own, just the craft fun of, of building a thing. Uh, so that's the second way that uh, that being engineer is good. I think the third thing is that the, if you're lucky to be working in a team where you're uh, getting the benefit of other people's skills that are helping you do your thing, uh, you know, none of us has all the skills needed to do um, most of these projects. And uh, if you have a team where you're working well with the others, that can be very satisfying. And then if you're an engineer, you also usually get paid. And so you, you kind <laughs> yeah. of get paid four times yeah. <laughs> uh, in my view of the world. Yeah. So what could be better than that? Get paid to have fun. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, what what do you love about engineering? What When you say engineering, what, is that, what does that mean to you exactly? What is this kind of 
big thing that we call engineering? I think it's both being a scientist or getting to use science at the same time as being kind of an artist or a creator. Because you're making some, you know, scientists only get to describe, to, to study what's out there. And engineers get to make stuff that didn't exist before. Mm -hmm. And so it's really, I think, a higher calling, even though I think most, you know, the public out there thinks science is top and engineering is somehow secondary, but I think it's the other way around. And at the cutting edge, I think when you, when you talk about robotics, there is a possibility to do art in that you do like the first of its kind thing. So then there's a the production at scale, which is its own beautiful thing. But when you do the first new robot or the first new thing, that's a possibility to create something totally new. That I mean, is br art. bringing metal to life or a machine to life is kind of is fun. And uh, you know, it was fun doing the dan the dancing videos where uh, got a huge you know public response. And we're going to do more. We're going to do some. We're doing some at the institute, and we'll we'll do more. Well, that metal to life moment, I mean, to me, that's still magical. Like uh, when when uh, inanimate objects comes to life, that's still, like to me, it's cool. to this day, is still an incredible moment. The human intelligence can create systems that instill life or whatever that is in, into inanimate objects. It's, it's, it's really, it's truly magical, especially when it's at the scale of, that humans can perceive mm. and appreciate mm. like directly. But I think sort of with it going going back to the pieces of that, you know, you design a linkage that turns out to be half the weight and just as strong. Mm -hmm. That's that's very that's satisfying. Cool. Yeah. And you know, there are people who do that and mm -hmm. it's it's a creative a creative act. Uh what what to you is the most beautiful about robotics? <laughs> Sorry for the big romantic question. I think having the robots move in a way that's uh, uh, evocative of life is is pretty exciting. So the elegance of movement, yeah. Or or if it's a high performance act where it's doing it, you know, faster, bigger than uh, than other robots. Usually, we're not doing it bigger, faster than people, but we, you know, we're getting there in a few narrow dimensions. So faster, bigger, smoother, more elegant, more graceful. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to do dancing that that starts. You know, we're nowhere near the uh, the dancing capabilities of a human. We we've been having a ballerina in who's uh, kind of a well known ballerina, and she's been programming uh, the robot. We've been working on the tools that can make it so that she can use her way of talking, uh, you know, way of doing a choreography or something like that, more accessible uh, to uh, to get the robot to do things and. She, Starting to produce some interesting stuff. Well, we should mention that there is a choreography tool. There is. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I guess I saw versions of it, uh, <laughs> which is pretty cool. You can kind of, <laughs> at, at slices of time, uh -huh. control different parts at the high level, the movement of the robot and spot. We hope to take that forward and make it you know, more tuned to how uh, the dance world wants to talk, wants to communicate, and, and get better performances. I mean- We've done, done a lot, but there's still a lot possible. And I'd like to have uh, performances where the robots are dancing with people. So right now, almost everything that we've done on dancing uh, is to a fixed time base. So once you press go, the robot does its thing and plays out its thing. It's not listening. It's not watching. Mm -hmm. But I think it should do those things. I think I would love to see a professional ballerina like alone in a room with a robot, slowly teaching the robot. 
just actually the the process of a clueless robot trying to figure out a, a small little piece of a dance. So it's not like because uh, right now Atlas and Spot have done like perfect dancing, right? Uh, to a beat and so on. One, so you know, uh, to a degree, but like uh, the learning process of interacting with a human would be like incredible to watch. One of the cool things going on, you know, that there's a class at Brown University called Choreo Robotics. Sydney Skybetter mm-hmm. is a dancer, uh, choreographer, and he he teamed up with uh, Stephanie Telex, who's a computer science professor, mm-hmm. and they taught this class. And I think they have some uh, graduate students helping teach it, where they have two spots and people come in. Most, uh, I think it's fifty fifty of uh, computer science people and dance people, mm-hmm. and uh, they do. They program performances that are that are very interesting. I show some of them sometimes when I give a talk. And making that process of a human teaching the robot more efficient and more intuitive, maybe part language, part movement, that'd be fascinating. That'd be really fascinating. Because uh, I mean, one of the things I've kind of realized is um, humans communicate with movement a lot. It's not just language. There's a lot. Of, there's body language. Oh. There's so many intricate little things. And totally. And like that, you know, to to watch a human and spot communicate back and forth with movement is, uh, I mean, there's so many wonderful possibilities there. Yeah. But it's also a challenge. You know, we we get asked to have our robots perform with uh, with famous dancers, mm-hmm. and they can, you know, they have 200 degrees of freedom or something, mm-hmm. right? Every little ripple yep. and thing, and they have all this head and neck and shoulders and stuff. And the robots mostly don't have all that stuff, and it's it's uh, it's a daunting challenge to not look stupid, mm-hmm. you know, physically stupid next to them. And yeah. So we've we've pretty much avoided that kind of performance, but we'll we'll get to it. I think even with the limited degrees of freedom, we could still have some sass and flavor and so on. You can figure out your own thing, yeah. even if you can't. And we can reverse things like. If you watch a human do uh, robot animation, which is a dance style mm-hmm. where you know you jerk around mm-hmm. sort of and you pop, you pop and pop and lock and all that stuff, I think the robots could show up the da- the humans by uh, you know doing unstable oscillations and things that are faster than a person could. So that's sort of on my you know my plan, but we haven't quite gotten there yet. You you mentioned about building teams and robotics teams and so on. How do you how do you find great engineers? How do you hire great engineers? I think you even need to have an environment where interesting engineer. Well, you know, it's a chicken and egg. If you have an environment where interesting engineering is going on, then engineers want to work there. And uh, uh, you know, I think it took a long time to develop that at Boston Dynamics. In fact, when we started, uh, although. You know, I had the experience of building things in the in the my in the leg lab, both at CMU and at MIT. Uh, we weren't that sophisticated of uh, an engineering thing compared to what Boston Dynamics is now. Uh, but it was our ambition to do that. And you know, Sarcos was another uh, robot company. So I always thought of us as being uh, this much on the computing side and this much on the hardware side, mm-hmm. and they were like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then over the years, we you know, I think we achieved the same or better uh, levels of engineering. Meanwhile, you know, Sarkar's got acquired and then they went through all kinds of changes. And uh, I don't know exactly what their current status is, but uh, so it took, it took many years as, as part of the answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you get, you got to find people who love it. 
in the early days we would we paid a little less so we only got people who were doing it cuz cuz they really it. loved it we also hired people who might not have professional degrees you know people who were building bicycles and uh building kayaks we have some people who come from that make, kind of the maker world and that's really important uh uh, for the kind of work we do to have that be part of the mix. Whatever that is, the w whatever <laughs> the magic ingredient that makes a great builder, maker, yeah. uh, that that's the big part of it. People who took, who repaired the car, the yeah. cars or uh, built or motorcycles or whatever in their garages or when they were kids. There's a kind of like the robotics students, grad students and just roboticists that uh, I know and I hang out with. There's a kind of endless energy and like there's just they're just happy <laughs> like say uh i compare it another group of people that are like that are people that skydive professionally <laughs> there's just like a excitement and general energy that i think probably has to do with the fact that they're just constantly first of all fail a lot <laughs> and then the the joy of building a thing that you eventually works yeah, talk about being happy. My, there used to be a time when, when I was doing the machine shop work myself yeah. back in those uh, JPL and Caltech days, when if I came home smelling like the machine shop, you know, because it's an oily place, yeah. my wife would say, oh, you you had a good day today, because huh? <laughs> yeah. you could tell that that's where I'd been. You've done, so, you've, yeah, you've, <laughs> you've actually built something. You've done something in the right. physical world. Um, yeah, and probably the videos help, right? The videos help show off what robotics is. Oh, you know, at Boston Dynamics, it put us on the map. Uh, we, uh, I remember interviewing some sales guy, mm -hmm. and he was from a company, uh, and he said, "Well, no one's ever heard of my company, but we have products, uh, you know, really good products. You guys, everybody knows who you are, <laughs> but you don't have any uh, <laughs> any products at all, which was true. Yeah. So it was, and you know, we thank uh, YouTube for that. YouTube came, we caught the YouTube wave, mm -hmm. and it had a huge impact on uh, on our company." I mean, that's that's it's it's a big impact on not just on your company, but on robotics in general, and yeah. helping people understand, inspire what is possible. Yeah, with robots, yeah. They inspire imagination, fear, and all, everything. All the, the full spectrum of human emotion was was aroused, which is yeah, which is great, which is is great for the entirety of humanity, and and also probably inspiring for young people that want to get into AI and robotics. Yeah, uh, let me ask you about some competitors. Sure. You've been uh, complimentary of Elon and Tesla's work on Optimus Robot, uh, with this uh, their humanoid robot. What do you think of uh, their efforts there with the humanoid robot? You know, I really admire uh, Elon uh, as a technologist. I think that uh, what he did with Tesla is just totally mind-boggling, that he could go from this totally niche area that, you know, less than 1% of anybody seemed to be interested to making it so that essentially every car company in the world is uh, trying to do what uh, what he's done. So you got to give it to him. And then look at SpaceX. You know, He's basically replaced NASA, if you could. That might be a little exaggeration, but not by much. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, you got to admire the guy and, uh, you know, I wouldn't count him out for, for anything. You know, I don't think uh, Optimus today is uh, is where Atlas is, for instance. I don't know. It's a little hard to compare them to the other uh, companies. Uh, you know, I, I I visited Figure. I think they're doing well and they have a good team. Uh, I've uh, visited Aptronic, and I think they're they have a good team and they're doing well. Uh, but 
Elon has a lot of resources. He has a lot of ambition. I like to take some credit for his ambition. I think, <laughs> uh, I think if I read between the lines, it's hard not to think that uh, him seeing what Atlas is doing is a little bit of an inspiration. I, I hope so. Mm-hmm. Do you think Atlas and Optimus will, will hang out at some point? I would love to host that. You know, yeah. now that I'm not at Boston Dynamics, you know, I'm not officially connected. I am on the board, but I'm not officially connected. I would love to host a uh, robot meetups. A robot meetup. Yeah. <laughs> uh, does the AI Institute uh, work with spots and atlases? Is it focused on spots mostly right now uh, as a have, platform? We have a bunch of different robots. We bought everything we could buy. So we have uh, uh, spots. Uh, I think we have a good size fleet of them. I don't know how many it is, but a good size fleet. We have a couple of Animal robots. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Animal is a company founded by Marco Hutter, even though he's not that involved anymore. But we have a couple of those. We have a bunch of arms like uh, you know Franca's and uh, U.S. Uh, robotics, because uh, you know even though we have ambitions to build stuff and we are build, starting to build stuff, uh, you know, day one getting off the ground, we just you know just bought stuff. And, uh, I love this like robot playground you've built. Yeah. You can <laughs> come over and take a look if you want. <laughs> That's great. So it's like all these kinds of robots, legged, arms. It doesn't feel that much like, well, there's some areas that feel like a playground, but it's not like they're all frolicking together. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> hey, again, maybe you'll arrange it, uh, a robot meetup. Um, but in general, what's your view on competition in this space for, especially like humanoid and legged robots? Are you... Are you excited by the competition or the the friendly competition? I think that um, it it doesn't. You know, I don't think I don't think about competition that much. Uh, you know, I'm not a commercial guy. Uh, I think for many years at Boston, you know, the many years I was at Boston Dynamics, we di- we didn't think about competition. We were just kind of doing our thing. There wasn't it wasn't like there were products out there that we were competing with. No, you know, maybe there was some competition for DARPA. Funding, which we got, you know, got a lot of, got very good at at getting, but even there, uh, in in a couple of cases where we might have competed, we ended up just being the robot provider. That is for the little dog program. You know, we we just made the robots. We didn't participate as developers except for developing the robot. And in the DARPA Robotics Challenge, we didn't compete. We uh, provided the robots. So, uh, uh, you know. In the AI world now, now that we're working on cognitive stuff, it feels much more like a, a competition. You know, the the entry uh, requirements in terms of computing hardware and uh, and the skills of the team are uh, and, and and hiring talent. It's it's a much tougher place. So I think much more about competition now on the cognitive side. On the physical side, it doesn't feel like it's that much about competition yet. Uh-huh. Obviously, with ten humanoid companies out there, ten or twelve, I mean, there's probably others that I don't know about. Um, they're definitely in competition. Will be in competition. How much room is there for a quadruped and especially a humanoid robot to become cheaper? So, like cutting costs, and like how low can you go? <laughs> and how much of it is just mass production? So, questions of you know, Hyundai, like how to produce versus like engineering innovation, how to simplify. Um, I think there's a huge way to go. I don't think we've seen the bottom of it or the bottom in terms of lower prices. Uh, 
you know, I think you should be totally optimistic that at asymptote, things don't have to be anything like as expensive as they are now. Back to competition, I wanted to say one thing. I think in the quadruped space, having other people selling quadrupeds is a great thing for Boston Dynamics. Because the question, I believe the question in the user's minds is, which quadruped do I want? It's not, oh, can a quadru- do I want a quadruped? Can a quadruped do my job? Uh, it's much more like that, which is a, a great place for it to be. Yeah. Then, then you're just, you know, doing doing the things you normally do to make your product better and compete and sell, selling and all that stuff. And that'll be the way it is with humanoids at some point. Well, there's a lot of humanoids, and you're just not even. It's like uh, it's, iPhone versus Android, and people are just buying both, and it's kind of just yeah. Uh, you, you're not really you're creating the category, yeah, you know, or the category, category is happening. I mean, right now the use cases, you know, that that's the the key thing: having realistic use cases that are money making uh, in robotics is is a big challenge. You know, there's the warehouse use case. That's probably the only thing that makes anybody any money in robotics at this point. There's got to be a moment. There's old fashioned robotics. I mean, there's aren't fixed arms doing manufacturing. I don't want to yes. say that they're not making money. It's industrial robotics, yes, but. I, I, there's got to be a moment when social robotics starts making real money, meaning like a spot type robot in the home. And there's tens of millions of them in the home. And they're like, you know, I don't know how many dogs there are in the United States as pets. But this <laughs> many. feels <laughs> many. <laughs> it feels like there's something we love about having a intelligent companion with us that remembers us, that's excited to see us, all that kind of stuff. But it's also true that the companies making those things, there've been a lot of failures in recent times, right? There's that one year when I think three of them went under. Um, so it's it's, not, it's not that easy to do that, right? Getting, you know, getting uh, performance, safety, and cost all to be where they need to be at the same time is, uh, that's, that's hard. But also some of it is, like you said, you can have a product, but uh, people might not be aware of it. So like also part of it is the videos or however you connect with the public, uh, the the culture and like create the category. That make, make people realize this is the thing you want. Because from a, you know, there's a lot of negative perceptions you can have. Do you really want a system with a camera in your home walking around, right? Uh, if, if it's presented correctly and if there's like the right kind of boundaries around it that you understand how it works and so on, that, uh, a lot of people would want to. And if they don't, they might be suspicious of it. So that that's an important one. Like we, we all use smartphones and that has a camera that's looking at us. <laughs> yeah, and no, yeah, it has two or three or four. <laughs> and it's listening. Isn't it? Very few people are, are uh, you know, suspicious about it. They kind of take it for granted and so on. And I think robots would be the same kind of way. I, I agree. So as you work on the cognitive aspect of uh, of these robots, do you think we'll ever get to human level or superhuman level intelligence. There's, there's been a lot of conversations <laughs> about this in, in, uh, recently, given the rapid development in large language models. Um, I, I think that intelligence is a lot of different things. And I think some things, computers are already smarter than people. And some things, they're not even close. And you know, I think you'd need a menu of, of detailed, categories to come up with uh with that but i also think that the you know the 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 conversation that seems to be happening about agi is puzzles me it's sort of so i ask you a question do you think there's anybody smarter than you in the world 
<laughs> Absolutely, yes. Does do you find that threatening? No. So I don't understand even if computers were smarter than people, why we should assume that that's uh, a threat. Uh, especially since they could easily be smarter but still available to us or under our control, which is basically how computers generally are. I think the the fears that they would be 10x, 100x smarter and uh, operating under different morals and ethical codes than humans like naturally do. And so almost become misaligned in uh, unintended ways and therefore harm humans in ways we just can't predict. And uh, even if we program them to do a thing as on the way of doing that thing, they would cause a lot of harm. And when they're a hundred times, a thousand times, 10,000 times smarter than us, we won't be able to stop it or won't be able to even see the harm as it's happening until it's too late, that kind of stuff. So you can construct all kinds of like possible trajectories of how the world ends because of super intelligent systems. It's a little bit like that line in the Oppenheimer movie uh, where they contemplate whether the first time they set off a reaction, all matter on earth is going to... Uh, you know, go go up. <laughs> I don't remember what the the verb they used was for uh, for it, uh, the chain reaction, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I guess it's possible, but uh, I don't. I don't think. I personally don't think it's worth worrying about that. I think that the, it, you know, it's an opportunity, balancing opportunities and risk. Mm -hmm. I think if you take any technology, uh, there's opportunity and risk, and you know, it's easy to point. I'll point at the car. Mm -hmm. uh, they pollute, and they um, about what um, 1.25 million people get killed every year around the world because of them. Despite that, I think they're a, a boon to humankind. Very useful. We all love many of us love them, uh, and those technical problems can be solved. They're, I think they are becoming safer. I think they're becoming less polluting. Or at least some of them are. Um, and every technology you can name has a story like that, in my opinion. What's the story behind the Hawaiian shirt? Is it a fashion statement, philosophical <laughs> statement? Is it just a statement of rebellion? Uh, Engineering you know, statement? It, it, it was born of me being a contrarian. <laughs> yes. Someone, it's a symbol. Someone told me once that uh, I was wearing one when I only had one or two. And uh, they said, oh, those things are so old-fashioned, you can't wear that mark. Mm -hmm. And I stopped wearing them for about a week. Yeah. And then I said, I'm not going to let them tell me yeah. what to do. And so every day since, pretty much. So it's like a <laughs> That was years ago. That was 20 years ago. 20 50, years. 15 years ago, probably. Uh, that says something about your personality. That's great. That's, you're not. <laughs> yeah. It took me a while to realize I was a contrarian. But, you know, it can be a useful tool. Mm -hmm. have, have you had people tell you about on the robotic side that, like, I don't think you could do this? A kind of uh, negative motivation. <laughs> uh, I'd rather talk about, uh, there's a guy, uh, when we were doing a lot of DARPA work, there was a Marine, uh, Ed Tovar, who's still around, who uh, his, his, what he would always say is when someone would say, oh, you can't do that, he'd say, why not? <laughs> yeah. And it's a great question. I ask yeah. all the time when I'm thinking, oh, that's going to, we're not going to do that. And I say, why not? And uh, I give him credit for opening my eyes to, to, uh, <laughs> to resisting that. So uh, yeah, yeah, the Hawaiian shirt is almost like a symbol of <laughs> why not. 
Okay. Um, what advice would you give to young folks that are trying to figure out what they want to do with their life, how to have a life they can be proud of, how they can have a career they can be proud of? When I was uh, teaching at MIT, I for a while I had uh, undergraduate advisees where you know people would have to meet with me uh, once a semester or something, mm-hmm. and they frequently would ask you know uh, what they should do. And uh, I think the advice I used to give was something like, uh, "Well, if you had no constraints on you, uh, no resource constraints, no opportunity constraints, and no still skill constraints, what would you could you imagine doing?" And I said, well, start there mm-hmm. and see how close you can get. You know, what's realistic <laughs> yeah. for, for how close you can get. You That's know, the other version of that is, you know, try and figure out what you want to do and, and do that. Because I don't I don't think a lot of people think that they're in a channel, right? And there's only limited opportunities, but yeah. It's usually wider than they think. Yeah, the opportunities really are limitless. But like at the same time you want to pick a thing, right? And it's the the, the diligence, <laughs> yeah. And really, really pursue it, right? Yeah. Like really pursue it, yeah. Because um, sometimes, like, the really special stuff happens after years of pursuit. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It can take it can take a while. I mean, you've been doing this for <laughs> forty plus years. People, some people think I'm in a rut, right? Why don't <laughs> I do? And in fact, the some of the inspiration for the uh, AI Institute is to say, okay. I've been working on locomotion for however many years it was. Uh, let's do something else. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's a, a really fascinating and interesting challenge. And, and you, uh, you're hoping to show it off also in the same way? as Just about to start Boston showing Dynamics. some stuff off, yeah. I hope we have a YouTube channel. I mean, one of the challenges is it's one thing to show athletic skills on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Showing cognitive function is a lot harder. And I haven't quite figured out yet how that's going to work uh there might be a way there's a way there's a way why not (laughs) i also do think sucking at a task is also compelling like the uh, (laughs) incremental improvement a robot being like really terrible at a task and then slowly becoming better even in athletic intelligence honestly like learning to walk and falling and slowly figuring that out i think there's something extremely compelling about that like right. we, we like flaws, especially with the cognitive task. It's okay to be clumsy. It's okay to be confused and a little silly and all that kind of stuff. It, it feels like in that space is where we can... There's charm. There's charm. The char- the char- uh, there's charm and there's something inspiring about a robot sucking and then becoming less terrible slowly <laughs> at, mm-hmm. at a task. No, I yeah. think you're right. That kind of reveals something about us, about ourselves. Ultimately, that's what's one of the coolest things about robots is it's kind of a mirror about what makes humans special. Just by watching how hard it is to make a robot do the things that humans do, you realize how special we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think is the meaning of this whole thing? Why are we here, Mark? You, you ever ask about the big questions as you try to create these humanoid, human-like intelligence systems? I don't know. I think you have to have fun while you're here. That's about all I know. <laughs> uh, it would be a waste. Well, it would be a waste not to, right? The ride is pretty short, so might as well have fun. 
Mark, uh, I'm a huge fan of yours. It's a huge honor that you would talk with me. This is really amazing. And your work for many decades has been amazing. I can't wait to see what you do at the AI Institute. I'm going to be uh, waiting <laughs> impatiently for the videos and the demos and, and the next robot meetup for maybe uh, Atlas and uh, Optimus to hang out. I would love to do that. That would be fun. Thank you so much for talking. Thank you. It was fun talking to you. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Mark Reiber. To support this podcast, please check out our sponsors in the description. And now, let me leave you with some words from Arthur C. Clarke. Whether we're based on carbon or on silicon makes no fundamental difference. We should each be treated with appropriate respect. Thank you for listening and hope to see you next time.